The only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And our salvation is based on grace and mercy alone. And we're so joyful this morning to be in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In God's grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. And in God's mercy, he withholds what we do deserve. How blessed are we. But what a joy to be with you here this morning at Champion Forest Baptist Church. I want to thank your pastor for his kind words of invitation. I want to be uh, part of this next few days that God indeed would revive our hearts and that God would shape and sharpen a generation of preachers that will exalt Christ through the exposition of the scriptures and the preaching of the gospel. So I'm, I'm all fired up. I'm, I'm ready uh, to be a part of this. I appreciate Jarrett. Our friendship started back at Prestonwood when I visited there, and we became kindred hearts, a bit like David and Jonathan. Uh, I love his heart for God. He's got a sharp mind, and he's got great skills as a leader, and you are blessed to have him, and I'm sure you know that two or three years in, yeah, to his ministry. Uh, some years ago when I was pastoring a Baptist church in uh, Toledo, Ohio, one of the deacons came up to me and said, Pastor, I saw a sign in a gun shop downtown Toledo that you would appreciate. And I said, well, what, what did it say? He said, right there on the front window of that gun shop was this sign, treat your gun like you'd treat an Irishman. Always assume it's loaded. Well, <laughs> Well, well, I'm, lo I'm locked and loaded, ready to pull the trigger. So uh, grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 to 9. I bring you greetings from Kindred Community Church in Anaheim Hills. We're about 15 minutes north of Disneyland. So if you're ever in Southern California in beautiful Orange County, come and visit us and we'll try and be a home from home for you in Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. We have a tradition in our church. I shouldn't do it to you, but I'm going to ask you. If you've got a copy of God's Word, open it to there and stand as we read it together. Uh, Nehemiah 8 says the people of God stood in the hearing of God's Word. And we're not here to worship the Bible, but we are here to worship the God that wrote it. And what a privilege to be able to open it and learn it and have it and live it out. Um, where the Word of God is properly preached, there is the Word of God. This is the highest point in any Protestant church service where we get to hear from God. He has heard from us in prayer and praise. Now we get to hear from him. This is the word of the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have grievous, or you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So reads God's word and you may be seated. As I said, I want to speak this morning on the subject, the future looks good. From the vantage point of 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 9. When Winston Churchill was the prime minister of uh, the United Kingdom, he had a brief meeting with his counterpart in the Republic of Ireland. Both countries were going through some challenging times, and it is said that in that meeting, Churchill shared uh, that, you know what, the things in the UK are serious but not hopeless, to which the Irish Prime Minister responded, well, in Ireland, things are hopeless but not serious. <laughs> With all due respect to the Irish Prime Minister, hopelessness is a very serious condition. What oxygen is to the body 
hope and encouragement and expectation is to the soul. Take oxygen from the body and it will die through suffocation. Take hope from the heart and intellectual and spiritual paralysis will set in. And it will usually be accompanied by feelings of emptiness, senselessness, and purposelessness. Hopelessness is serious. Take away hope and the soul shrivels and the spirit dies. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar here in the United States, said this, hope looks into the future. It gives a reason for living. It makes actions and choices significant. It adds zest and focus. It provides a moral compass. I think you get the point. Hope is necessary for our well-being and for our happiness. Hope is the carrot on the end of the stick that helps us put one foot in front of the other. It is hope, is it not? It's expectation, is it not? It's anticipation, is it not, that gets us up in the morning, drives us forward, helps us pull out of those low moments, helps us hold on, helps us wait in a belief that there's a better day coming. Proverbs 4, verse 18 tells us that the path of the just grows brighter and brighter until that perfect day. Hope deferred, says Proverbs 13, 12, makes the heart sick. But when desires or when fulfillment or when expectation is met, when that comes, it's a tree of life. But hope deferred, dreams unmet, desires unfulfilled, it makes the heart sick. I like the story of the guy that was on the crew, one of those cruise ships, and it, it indulged a little bit too much at the buffet. It buffeted his body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. And, and uh, he, had, he, had, he was full, and the ship was heaving a little bit, and so he started to feel very nauseous. And so he goes out onto the dock to get a little bit of fresh air. He's leaning over the reel, and he knows what's coming. And as he's there in this miserable state, one of the sailors comes by and says, you know what, I know what you're going through. I've seen it a thousand times, but I want you to know I've sailed the seven seas and I've never seen anyone die of seasickness. The guy looks at him, he says, don't tell me that. It's the hope of dying that's keeping me alive. <laughs> we all need hope. It is hope that keeps us alive. It is hope that keeps us kicking and, and active Hope is the carrot on the end of the stick that allows us to put one foot in front of the other. And that's why it's a wonderful thing this morning, is it not, to be a Christian, amen? Because we have hope in spades. Christianity has cornered the market on hope. And Peter tells us that. He tells us, if you're a Christian, which is subscribed here as born again, you know, people get the impression that, you know, there's the Christian, and then there's those who are fanatical. They're the born-again types. My friend, being a born-again Christian is not a type of Christian. It's the only Christian there is. Jesus said, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of heaven. You need to have an encounter with the living Christ that transforms and changes your life radically, dramatically, and for eternity. And so Peter writes to those who are born again, not those who have turned a new leaf in reformation, those who have received a new life in regeneration. And he says, those who have been born again have been born again unto a living hope. Christianity has cornered the market on hope. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ possesses endless life. Hebrews 7, verse 16, and those who are in him and in union with him enjoy that endless life themselves. And so in a world of dying dreams, in a world of fading hope, the Christian is buoyed by a living, breathing, never dying hope in the resurrection of Jesus. And I want us to look at this hope because the future looks good. We have always something to hope for, always something to live for, and I'm going to show that in the text. But before we get there, let me just put the text in its context. The author is Peter, verse 1. We think the date's around late A.D. 64, early 65. And the context is that these Christians in Asia, modern-day Turkey, are suffering 
Now, they're suffering from what we might call soft persecution. For the most part, it hasn't ended in physical violence or martyrdom. But it's soft persecution. They're being maligned. They're being pushed out to the margins of society. Businessmen are losing business because of their commitment to Jesus Christ and his lordship. And on and on we could go. People are being pushed out of their family. They're losing inheritances. And in the middle of that suffering, Peter writes to encourage them. And he writes about the risen and returning Lord Jesus, this living hope that is theirs. And he reminds them, this is the carrot on the end of the stick. You'll find this little phrase in, in Peter, suffering followed by glory. That was true in Jesus' case, verse one, chapter 1, verse 11. It's true in their case, chapter 4, verse 12 to 13. And it's true in the case of every pastor. It's the cross now, it's the crown later. It's labor now, it's rest later. It's suffering now, it's triumph later. And he wants to them to, to have this, this hope rooted in the risen Christ who's returning in glory to take them to glory. And it's that future glory that causes them to keep going. I hope it'll be true for you this morning. First Peter is a bottle of spiritual smelling salts to help the Christian persevere. John, uh, David Jeremiah said, hope is God's sunshine piped down from heaven into a dark world. So let's look at this hope, three things. I want us to look at the ground of this hope. I want us to look at the guarantee of this hope. I want us to look at the gladness of this hope. Amen, are you following? So if you're taking notes, write that down. The ground of this hope, the guarantee of this hope, the gladness of this hope. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. This is a, a long uh, sentence in the Greek. It, it's a doxology. It's, it's, it's riddled through with the spirit of praise. Peter's celebrating something. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, but we're just singing about that, has begotten us to a living hope. We've been born again to a living hope. Notice, through, sourced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the ground of our hope. The ground of our hope is the Lord Jesus risen, reigning, and returning. That's where our expectation uh, finds its source. Our positive outlook comes from an empty tomb. I hope you know today, and I hope you believe in, 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 down to the soles of your feet. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied at the right hand of God where Jesus ever lives to pray for us, and the King is coming. And you've got to live between the boundaries of those realities, past, present, and future. An empty tomb, past, a occupied throne, present, a coming king, future. That'll stir you. That'll excite you. That'll give you hope. We've been born again to a new life, which provides for us a living hope. Remember, we were once in this world without God, and when you're without God, my friend, you're without hope. But now we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ be not risen, we are of all men most miserable. Isn't that Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15? We're still in our sin. Our faith is vacuous and empty. Our preaching is drivel. And all of our suffering for Jesus and all of our sacrifice for the kingdom is a waste. But he's not dead. He's risen. And so our sins are forgiven. And our faith is real. And it brings purpose and passion and joy to everything we do and are. And, and, and the preaching of God's word is an elixir on life. And we are willing to suffer this momentary moment for Christ because there is a greater glory coming. You'll notice this is a living hope. Paul used, Peter uses this word six times in his letter, and, and he talks about a living hope, he talks about a living word, he talks about a living stones in the edifice. What do we mean by living? What is, what is Peter after when he uses the word living? He's saying this, that our hope is sure. It's alive, it's, it's certain, it's alive, it's real, as opposed to deceptive, and, and it's not empty, and it's not false. It's a living hope. 
grounded in a reality, by the way, the reality that Jesus Christ is risen. See, according to the Bible, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he was buried, and three days, three days later he rose according to the scriptures. An historical fact. That's not the purview of my sermon today, but we could make a strong argument, and we could attest to the reality that Jesus is risen. Peter was an eyewitness. Jesus is living. He's, he's not dead. And that's where our hope is anchored, in that historical fact. We're not wishing upon a star. The Christian's hope is not an illusion. It's not a delusion. It's grounded in a historic, attested fact. He is not here, said the angel. He's risen. And you know what? Because he's alive, our hope is alive. A Christian hope that looks forward is the result of a Christian faith that looks back. You know what? The world in which um, Peter and these Christians lived was a world marked by fascinating beauty, intellectual power, poetry, art. But it was a world without hope. Old age, says Cranfield, the great commentator, was dreaded as the threshold leading out into the dark and cold. Over that classical civilization, death reigned as the king of terrors. Now by the resurrection of Christ, the king of terrors had been dethroned. Unlike their pagan neighbors, the early Christians were men and women of hope. A new dimension had been, had given, been given to their lives, the dimension of a future eternal life. My friend, we have a hope in Jesus that never dies. Don't let it die in your heart this morning. You don't have to trade it in someday for something better because there's nothing better. There's no expiration date. It's as good today as it was yesterday and it'll be good tomorrow as it is today. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You need peace? He's got it. You need grace for the forgiveness of your sin, he'll give it. You need hope in the face of death, you can find it in him. Old Sidlow Baxter, the English preacher, said this, Christianity was never built on a coffin lid. The cross and bone, the skull and bones never are insignia. Muhammad is dead, Buddha is dead, Hindu sages are dead, but Jesus is alive. And according to Revelation, he's alive forevermore. Before we go on to our second thought, anybody read the book Moby Dick? Maybe not. It's an older book. It's, it has a couple of um, movie renditions of it. But Moby Dick is a famous story written by Herman Melvin. And it's about Captain Ahab who's obsessed with killing the white wheel. He calls Moby Dick because it bit his leg off. And so he's on a search and destroy mission. And you know what? It will end up costing him more than his leg. It'll cost him his life. Because of his obsession, eventually with this encounter with the whale, the ship will sink and all the sailors will be lost, bar one. In fact, the story of Moby Dick is told in the first person. It's told by a man called Ishmael, the only survivor of the ship. And there he is, the ship's down, captain and crew's gone. He's bobbing up and down in the sea, hopeless. But there's an interesting part of the story. While, while he was on the ship, one of his fellow sailors had a premonition that he was going to die. This was his last voyage. And so he asked the carpenter on the ship to build him a coffin. And so they built him a coffin, waiting for the fateful day, and, 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 you know, when the ship goes down somehow, the coffin, you know, gets loose. And as Ishmael is bobbing up and down in the sea, this coffin pop, pops up on the sea surface. And he climbs inside the open coffin and is saved. Now, here's the interesting part, folks. Herman Melvin, who wrote Moby Dick, was a Christian. And he wrote from a Christian worldview. And his images are not incidental or accidental. In fact, that part of the story is to convey the idea that it is an empty coffin that saves mankind. 
It's the empty coffin of Jesus Christ. It's the empty tomb where God has declared that our sins have been atoned for in the death of Jesus Christ and his son has conquered death and hell and darkness and has escaped that, that, that kingdom to bring hope to those who are imprisoned by the fear of death. My friend, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ saves. Don't load your hopes on any temporary shoulders, your situation, your location, people. Our hope rests squarely on the shoulders of the risen Lord Jesus. Okay, that's the first thought, the, the ground of this hope. Now here's the second thought, the guarantee of this hope. Do you like things to be guaranteed? If you buy something, you like a guarantee to come with it. With your car or some you know, kitchen appliance or someone makes you a promise, you know, in some way they guarantee it. It brings a sense of security and, and, a, and a sense of well-being. Well, this hope comes with a guarantee. The living hope is through the Lord Jesus Christ raised, reigning, returning. And you'll notice that this living hope in Christ is directed towards a heavenly inheritance. Look at verse 4. See, we have been born again to a living hope sourced, grounded in the historic attested fact of Jesus' resurrection made real to us through the Spirit of God who makes us alive in Christ. Two, to this end, that you and I can enjoy an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away, research reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen? What a couple of verses. In fact, Peter will say in his second letter that God gives us great and exceeding promises. I want to ask you, is there any better than that one? An inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you that doesn't corrupt or fade? This is the guarantee. For the Christian, the future looks real good because the future is guaranteed. Not many people can say that. Only the Christian can say that. My future is guaranteed. I know what's coming over the hill. I can already begin to see the dawning of the gleams of glory that are mine in Jesus Christ. Let's look at this inheritance. And, and remember, again, the context, he's speaking to persecuted Christians who are losing out materially because of their commitment to Jesus Christ, who are alone, maligned, and mocked, and censored by the culture. And he's writing to help them to look beyond their present troubles and their momentary circumstances to a living hope rooted in Jesus and the promise of an eternal inheritance. Notice the nature of this inheritance. The, the word here, inheritance, is a Greek word that's used in the Septuagint or the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the land that God promised to the descendants of Abraham and to, and to the sons uh, uh, of Jacob. Uh, you can read about it in Numbers 26, verse 54, and Joshua 11, verse 23. It speaks of territory that God allotted to each of the tribes of Israel. And you know what? It's a God-given, grace-provided apportionment. And in the Old Testament, it, it dealt with territory, real estate, acreage. And, and, I, and no doubt our inheritance is tied into that also, right? Because Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13, that there's coming a day in the future. It's called the day of the Lord when God's judgment will be poured out on an unbelieving world. And all that we see and touch and taste will be burned up. But in its place, what? A new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Can I tell you something that rock your world this morning? We're not going to spend all of eternity up there. We're going to spend all of eternity down here. And perhaps we get an allotment. Maybe we get a piece of real estate in the kingdom of God. 
I've been praying for some years, Lord, give me California without the liberals. I'll take that. I'd love to live in California without the loonies, you know, messing up life. But I don't know what it is. Is it California? I'd take Maui. It's close to heaven anyway. It's beautiful. But, but no doubt, part of our inheritance that's being reserved for us is life back on earth in a resurrected body where we serve the Lord, but we do it without exhaustion, where we serve the Lord without temptation. Bring it on. That's our inheritance, a new body on a new earth, a reunion with our loved ones in God's presence forevermore where there are pleasures to be enjoyed endlessly. That's our inheritance. You'll notice the nature of the inheritance. Notice, secondly, the quality of the inheritance. Back to our text. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and doesn't fade away. Now, we could get into the Greek there, but it were, just to keep it very practical and given time this morning, you know, Peter's just piling one word on top of another, three different words with a nuance of difference. There is a distinction but there is a difference without a distinction in these verses. The point is, the quality of this inheritance is it doesn't fade. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, rust. It doesn't get corrupted. It, it, it doesn't get worse as time goes by. That's the point. Now, now if we go back to our analogy to, to the Old Testament, you know, unlike the land of Israel during human history, during this age, the land of Israel could be corrupted. It could be devalued. It was often invaded and stolen. It's still being fought over at this very moment. Famine could come. Weather could come. Invading armies could come. And their inheritance could be stolen. Although it's my conviction in a future day, God will give that piece of real estate to the descendants of Abraham. It's theirs forever. But that aside, our inheritance can never be stolen. It, it's an inheritance where sin cannot stain it, where Satan cannot steal it, where time cannot spoil it, and where death cannot smother it. Isn't it good to own something like that? Something that doesn't fade away but remains forever. H.B. Charles, who you'll hear tomorrow night, is a friend. We ministered together just recently in Tennessee. I remember him saying at a conference once that that which lasts the longest is worth the most. I don't know how you're measuring your wealth this morning, but it better be in terms of your eternal inheritance. Yeah, a fat bank balance is a nice thing. But my friend, if you're a Christian, whether poor or wealthy, working class, middle class, upper class, you have something that's going to last forever, and that's where you need to put your worth. That's how you need to measure your bottom line. Notice, finally, the security of this inheritance. I love this. I love the fact that it's been promised and I've been told that it's incorruptible and undefiled, but, but give me a reason to believe that. Well, we've got it in verse 5, because God is keeping it by his power. He's reserving it out of his power. As far as I know, no one's stronger than God, which means that you and I have a trust in the vaults of heaven that's accruing in value day by day. And the fluctuations of the market and life circumstances and death itself will never rob you of it. There's a security to it. This is a word cap that is used of a Roman garrison within a city. It was used in Philippians 4, verse 7, of the peace of God guarding, protecting, shielding our hearts. This is a great and exceeding promise that God will keep the soul of the believer safe for an inheritance of salvation that will be fully revealed and completely experienced in the presence of God when Jesus returns. See, it's going to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 7. Look, here's a wonderful truth. This, this final experience of salvation, you know there's three tenses to salvation, right? You are saved. That's justification. 
You are being saved, that's sanctification, and you will be saved. Glorification. So if somebody asks you, are you saved? You say, yes, but not fully. Because there's a coming a day when God will save you fully, when you'll be saved to sin no more. We've been saved from the penalty of sin in justification, saved from the dominion of sin in sanctification through the Holy Spirit, and we, are being, we will be saved from the very presence of sin and glorification. When this imperishable body will and this perishable body will be made imperishable. This corrupt body will be made incorruptible. And this natural or fleshly body will be made spiritual. That doesn't mean your body won't be material. It just means that your fallen nature in Adam won't be there anymore. God's going to save us fully. He's keeping that for us. And he's keeping us for that. You're going to get there. You're going to get there. Adrian Rogers once said this. The best thing in the world is being saved, right? Wrong. Now that sounds wrong, but follow. The best thing in the world is being saved, right? Wrong. Something better than that is ours. That is that we, we, we're, we're, we're saved and, and we can know it. And yet there's something better than that. The best thing in the world is not being saved and, and the best thing in the world is not being saved and know it. The best thing in the world is being saved, knowing it, and knowing you can't lose it because it's reserved in heaven for you, kept by the power of God. This is a sure and certain hope. This is a hope that will not disappoint. People and friends and family will disappoint you. Things will disappoint you. That which you think is going to bring you happiness, if you can only buy that, if you can only live there, it'll disappoint you. You will disappoint you. Have you ever looked in the mirror and go, what a loser. <laughs> Did I just do that? Church will disappoint you. Most things we put our hope in will disappoint us. They'll not deliver and they'll fade away. But Jesus never disappoints. And the promise that he gives in this eternal inheritance won't fade away. My friend, don't you want that this morning? Make sure you put your trust in Jesus. Make sure you come forward. Make sure you sign your line, you sign your name on the dotted line of inviting you to come and enjoy eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The everlasting life we're describing this morning. And before we leave this, let me tell you a story. Because as I said, um, it's a wonderful thing to know that you and I have a, 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 an eternal trust in the vaults of heaven. And we enjoy things even now that can't be taken away from us. A right relationship with God through faith in Christ. The indwelling, empowering, comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. We've got all the great and exceeding promises of God. We've got peace that passes all understanding. We've got joy that's inexpressible. And we've got love that's inseparable. Because nothing will separate us from his love. It's all ours. And we need to know that because much of what we touch and taste and see and hold... Someday we will lose. Ruth um, Graham Lutz, the daughter of Billy Graham, in her book, God's Story, tells about a summer where, where uh, um, school had just ended and summer was coming and so she grabbed her daughters and they went downtown to enjoy some ice cream and celebrate summers here. No more homeworks, you know, fun days at the, in the forest or at the beach or whatever. And when they went home, they found the door was open and someone had broken into the home, ransacked the place. In fact, they had neatly folded back the bed clothes and taken the pillow slips off the pillows and used them as sacks. And they put in heirlooms and jewelry and whatever money they could find and so on and so forth. And you can imagine the, 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 the discomfort of that. And um, the police actually told uh, Ruth Graham Lutz that, you know what? My guess is they've been casing the joint for a while. There's just no stopping this. When they make their mind up, they're going to pick the right time. They're going to do it in the right way. There's just no way you can stop this. And, and she said that night as she lay in bed 
with her head on the pillow where they'd taken the pillowcases, she started thinking about how fragile life is and how quickly you can lose the things you have. I'll let her speak. That night I crawled into my bed, the same bed that the thieves had so neatly turned back so that they could take the pillowcases and use them as sacks to cart off our stuff. As I lay there in the darkness thinking of what the police had said, I felt myself growing icy cold with the realization that there was nothing that I had that could not be taken from me. That is a rather sobering thought, isn't it? That everything you have, physically, materially, can be taken from you. She said this, my health can be robbed by illness. My education could be outdated by advanced knowledge. My house could be burned to the ground. My children could leave home. My husband could drop dead. My, my youth could be robbed by old age. My reputation by scandal. But as she lay there, troubled by all of that, God spoke to her from the word. The Spirit of God pressed on her heart these words. But listen, Ruth, you have an inheritance that's incorruptible, that doesn't fade away, that's reserved in heaven for you, kept, you're kept by the power of God. So she got up, she went down to her kitchen, she got out a jotter and she started writing down the alphabet and alongside it she started writing the things she had in Christ that couldn't be taken away. A, accepted by God, B, beloved by God, C, chosen by God, delivered by God, enlightened by God, forgiven by God, G, grace of God, hope, H, hope for the future, I, inheritance in heaven, J, justification, K, knowledge of God, L, love, mercy, nearness, oneness, peace, quickening of the spirit. She went right through the alphabet. If you want to know what she did with Z, you can find yourself. <laughs> Not sure what she did with Z, but what a thought. I want you to go home today and meditate on the A to Z. Some of us are living with the ABCs of the gospel. Get to the A to Zs of the gospel and all that is yours and purchased for you in the blood of Jesus Christ and has been given to you by God's grace, and the Spirit of God will listen and dwells you according to Ephesians 1, 12 to 14, as a down payment for an inheritance still to come. I hope that that's an encouragement. Let's get to the last thought, time's beating me. The gladness of this hope. The gladness of this hope. Verse 6. In this, pause, in this hope, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus, in this hope that promises an inheritance that can't be taken away, this is where you focus. This is where you get your jollies. This is where you find your peace. This is where you get your purpose. In this, rejoice. Not not in your physical health, not in your wealth, not in your circumstances, not in the abundance of your friends. No, that all comes and goes. That all fades. But in this, that which doesn't fade, attach your joy there because you'll never be disappointed. Though facing sorrowful times, the Christians to whom Peter writes possesses a uh, possess a present joy independent of their circumstances, a present joy that knows their souls are safe, a present joy that knows that death has been conquered, a present joy that anticipates the end of their faith in complete salvation when they're glorified. I hope you're rejoicing. When my father-in-law, Gordon Elliott, who's now with the Lord Scotsman, my wife's from Scotland, when he got saved, he was a factory worker at the time, when he got saved, the word went out. That didn't go out, hey, Gordon's become a Christian. Gordon's one of those born again guys. You know what they said? Hey, have you heard Gordon Elliott's become a hallelujah? I love that, don't you? I like that description. When people think about me, hey, he's a hallelujah. He's one of those people with irreplaceable, indescribable joy. I hope you're a hallelujah this morning. And I hope you're maintaining your hallelujah despite your cancer, despite your circumstances, despite your challenges, because your joy's not tied in to anything material. Your joy's tied into an inheritance. Amen. That this day like yesterday and this day like tomorrow is the same as it was. 
unending, fantastic, and it's ours. Now here's the point as we kind of move towards a, a conclusion. Because of this present joy, rooted in the reality of the past reality of Jesus' resurrection, tied to the future coming of the king and the kingdom we will enjoy with him, they were able to handle their momentary troubles. Look at, look at verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They were able to handle their momentary trials in the light of their future blessings. A couple of things quickly about their trials in the light of their coming inheritance. Number one, their trials were passing. Notice that in verse six. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you're being grieved with various trials. They must see their tears and their trials and their valleys as temporary and transient. The suffering they're going through will pass and it will emerge into that endless day in the presence of Jesus. And he wants that to help them. He wants that to act as spiritual smelling salts to revive them in their discipleship and commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this. We can misunderstand this text. A little while doesn't mean that suffering is a small part of life or that it's brief. For some Christians, suffering is a day in, day out, week in, week out thing. Think about a believer dealing with disability, where every morning is a tremendous effort if you read the writings of Johnny Tata Erickson just to get up with a smile on your face. Think about brothers and sisters in North Korea or in China or in parts of the Middle East who are constantly under threat for their commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. No, their suffering measured by the span of life, it's not little, it's long. But you see, the measurement isn't birth to death. The measurement is time and eternity. And in the light of eternity, what you and I are going through is just a little while. Can't you hang in a little while? Can't you suffer a little while? Can't you stand for Jesus? A little while. I mean, what about Romans 8, 18? You, you know that, that, that verse that our present suffering is not to be compared with the glory we will receive. What about 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, where you've got a similar thought. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Our inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. And again, hold on a minute, Paul. Light affliction? Some illnesses come with excruciating pain. Some people have lived in poverty their whole lives. Some brothers and sisters have been tortured in a way that would make our stomachs turn. Well, how can you say it's light? Well, it's, it's only light in compared to the weight of glory that it's going to be swapped for when Jesus comes. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us and for us a more exceeding eternal weight. Let me um, tell this story and move on. I'm a big fan of Spurgeon. Being a British Baptist by origin, you can't help but love Spurgeon. And, and in one of his sermons, he, he talks about what does it matter for one night? What does it matter for one night. And he says this, that often when he left England and traveled in Europe, sometimes the hotels weren't up to snuff. Sometimes the inns were bare and scarce and the food was cold. How did he handle that? How did he get through that? Here's what he would say. Well, I would say to myself and I would say to those traveling with me, oh, never mind. We're off in the morning. What does it matter for one night? 
And he applies it. So as we are soon to be gone and the time of our departure is imminent, let us not be ruffling our tempers about trifles, not be raising evil spirits through finding fault. Take things as you find them for we will soon be up and away. Not a good word for whatever you're suffering from this morning. It's just for one night in the light of eternity. We'll soon be up and away. So get up and keep going until we're up and away. Secondly, the trials were profitable. This deserves a greater treatment than I'm going to give it, but you'll see that, that those who have faith in Jesus, they're being persecuted and they're being, and they're, they're being um, um, you know, put under pressure by the surrounding culture. But, but Peter wants them to know on top of that, God is allowing it as a test. See, Satan and the world tempts us to bring us down. God tests us to build us up. And so he says, look, this crucible, this crisis you're going through, you know what? Surrender to it. Embrace it. You can. You can live it given the hope that you have, the carrot on the end of the stick to keep going, keep on, keeping on. And you know what? Surrender to it and let the crucible Prove your faith and, 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 and refine your faith, proving its genuineness. Because when Jesus comes, you want to be found with a genuine faith, a robust faith, a living for him who died for you. And the images of a, 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 a goldsmith, right, here in verse 7, who, is, who, who takes gold and melts it down so that the impurities and the weaknesses will rise to the surface, what they call dross, and the dross is scooped off in a cup. And that process takes place a few times until the, the, the goldsmith can see their reflection in the gold, and that, then they know it's proved and perfected. And my friend, I don't know what you're going through, but God's testing your faith. He's testing the metal of your commitment to him. And he wants you to prove the genuineness of your faith. And he wants to develop in you likeness to Jesus Christ in the fires of trouble and trial. He wants you to show the world that you need not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Paul Tripp says this. Peter says that the trials that grieve us are the, tri are the trials that grace us. The problem is that we're seeking the grace of release when God knows we need the grace of refinement. See, you want out of the cauldron. You want out of the crucible. But God's testing your faith. He's proving your faith in him so that when Jesus returns at the end of verse seven, you may be found to praise, honor, and glory. That brings us to the last and final thought. Their trials were profitable. Passing, we're up in the morning. What does it matter? Purifying, profitable, verse seven. That you may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is encouraging them that when Jesus comes May you be found godly and growing and genuine, tested by the fire. And if that is how he finds you at the rapture and is coming for the church, you will find praise and honor and glory. Here's the thing as we close. That verse is not about us giving him praise, honor, and glory. That verse is him giving us praise, honor, and glory. How radical is that? See, I, 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 our instinct is this, I live for the glory of God. But you know what? As we do that, and we do it well, and we do it for his glory, and we do it with, with, with Christ-like character and, and attitude, when he comes, he's going to praise us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your Lord. I hope that's true of you and me. Suffering now, glory later. Don't forget soft persecution. They were being mocked, maligned, scandalized, slandered, talked about. 
Peter says, oh, don't worry about that. Live it. Let it test your faith and prove yourself a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, the one that you're looking like, he'll make you more like the one you're looking like. 1 John 3, 1 to 3. And he's going to say, well done. And he'll heal the wounds. And those battle scars will win medals and eternal joy. An English bishop by the name of Calvin Reed was interviewing a young man in his congregation. A young man who at the age of one or two had fallen down a set of steps and broke his spine. He was now 17. He was a robust, radiant Christian, and, and the pastor wanted the congregation to hear this young man's story and, and how he, he, he continued through trials and, and tears. He asked the young man, Reed, how old are you? And the boy said, 17. He said, how many years have you spent in hospital? Oh, he says, give or take about 13. In and out and sometimes prolonged stays. 13 years of 17 years. So the pastor kind of T-balled him up. You think that's fair? You know, how do you handle that? God is good. God is loving. How do you handle 13 years of surgeries and hospitalizations out of 17? Oh, he says, I I've got an answer for that. Uh, 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 um, God's got all of eternity to make it up to me. Not good? He's got all of eternity to make it up to you. So brother, sister, stop complaining. Run the race with endurance. Pay the price of discipleship for Jesus Christ. Take up your cross and follow him. Show a world that has no hope what it means to have a living hope and realize this, whatever the cost, whatever the nonsense, whatever the hurt, he's got all of eternity to make it up to you. And he will. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforest.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus in person on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.